Welcome and thanks for checking out this podcast from First International Christian Fellowship. The following message you are about to hear was carefully crafted with you in mind. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope that this message speaks to you as it did to us. Now here's Richard Fenimore delivering this week's sermon. Um, we're going to be d- doing it on um, 2 Corinthians 11, start 11, 16. And um, Paul boasts about his suffering. Let me see if I... This is... Um, the, the title of this is, is In Our Weakness, God's Power is Made Perfect. This is a, a, this is a fantastic doctrine that Paul presents to us. Um, Verse chapter twelve, uh, chapter eleven. He, this half of it, he's he's kind of addressing the Judaizers, um, who their and their effect on the Corinthians. And the Judaizers were Jews who were supposed to have become Christians, and what they did is they went behind Paul and they tried to convert all the Christians into a kind of a uh, a, a Judaism, you know, a, a Jewish thing. So what they did is they added things to the scriptures. One of the things they added is that um, in order to be saved, you have to uh, be circumcised. So you you have faith, and if you're circumcised, then you're saved, which is a lie. You know, we know that. There's only one thing that gets you into heaven. That's faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, nothing else. And they were things like, okay, you're not really a, a really uh, mature believer until you obey the Mosaic Law. And as funny as it sounds, that one's still around. You know, lots of people believe that and somehow you're a better Christian when you obey the Ten Commandments. And that, too, is a lie. The Ten Commandments actually have no place in Christianity. And I think that that's exactly what Paul will show us in this piece right here. <clears throat> he says, um, verse 16, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may uh, do a little boasting. And so what I'm going to do, this is sarcasm. You know, um, what happens is sar- sarcasm is one of my personal favorite ways to teach. And one of the reasons that is because a lot of people, they get comfortable. And they get really comfortable with the Christianity. And the truth is that God wants to tell them something. And with the with the Corinthians in this particular case, what they were, the, 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 um, they, we would call them, the old name used to be for somebody who backslid, backsliders. What that means, they actually turned away from God, and they turned away from, from Paul, and they turned away from uh, Christianity and Jesus, and they went back to being moral. Now, moral sounds like a really good thing, doesn't it? Most of us want to be moral. But moral compared to holiness is not the same. And what God asks us to do is to be holy. He doesn't want us to be moral. Moral is for unbelievers. Being moral is for unbelievers, too. That's, that's called the, the principles of God. Um, but for Christianity, it is holiness that God requires, and nothing less. Okay. So the, uh, the if here, where it says, I repeat, let, let no one take me for a fool. Um, this, is, this is what we would call teachers, preachers, and stuff, we call this sanctified sarcasm, which means that in reality, God the Holy Spirit is, um, is requiring Paul to be sarcastic. See, a lot of people think that sarcasm, there's no sarcasm in church. If they believe that, they have never read the Bible because Jesus is sarcastic and Paul is really sarcastic. And like I said, sometimes what happens is your preference is 
to teach people just the principles of God and to say, this is what God wants from you, and this is how you should do it, and I want you to all do that. But the problem is that people don't do that. People don't obey just principles and you give them to them. So what happens is you kind of have to slap them first, you know, to get their attention. And then when they go, what'd you do that for? Then you tell them the truth and they listen to it, okay? That's what sarcasm is. Sarcasm is like a slap. Um, if, you, if you remember, the, probably one of my favorite pieces of sarcasm is when Peter refused to have the Lord do his feet, remember? And, wh and what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Here's one of his apostles, both in the church and in Israel. And he says that to him, that's sarcasm. Okay, because surely he wasn't calling Peter Satan. So this thing right here is that, um, what it is, it's a piece that, um, it's a, what they call a presumption of stupidity. He says, let no one take me for a fool. And a fool is somebody who doesn't think. The word here is apaneo. And what it means is that, apaneo means to think. And apaneo means not to think. So he's saying, don't take me for a person who doesn't think. Okay? Um, and, and that's an important point because it, it means that you're stupid. Okay, that's another word. A synonym for that word is stupid. That's one of my favorite words, too, because people who come to church listen to foolishness, but as soon as you call them stupid, they get upset. Okay, they get a little hypersensitive. That's why I like to use it, because it jars people. Um, I would rather jar somebody, and that's the part that Paul's doing here, um, than to let them go on um, believing something's not true about God. And that's where Paul's at here. He uses this sarcasm, and he's really saying, if you guys put up with these morons, these Judaizers, and you did. See, this is a first-class condition. See where it says, but if you do, it's not, it's end if you do. It says, you listen to these idiots, the Judaizers, so surely you can listen to me while I act like an idiot. That's what Paul's saying here. He says, not only that, but I, I, I suspect if you treat me like you treat these idiots, you'll, open, you'll, you'll welcome me with open arms. Okay? More sarcasm. Okay? So he's just saying he wants to boast a little bit uh, so he can do it just like the, the Judaizers. This is, um, uh, in this self-confident boasting, I am, talking as the Lord, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. <clears throat> so what he's saying here with this piece, right? He, um, it's interesting. Um, I've, I'm pretty good at sarcastic teaching, but I'm horrible at boasting teaching. It, it takes real genius to use boasting as a way of teaching the Lord's principles. It really is difficult, you know. Um, but Paul does an excellent job of that. And let me tell you in advance, one of the reasons he does such a great job is because he's not arrogant. He's absolutely humble. He's not boast, he does not want to boast at all. But he will do it because this is the same thing the Judaizers do. And it's the only way to help the Corinthians get it. <clears throat> so he says, what he says here is, I'm not talking as the Lord would. What he's saying there is that sarcasm and boasting is not one of the ways that the Lord ever taught the Bible. Okay? He did not teach that way. But in reality, which, since you see this boasting and you see this sarcasm in the Word of God, it's written by the Holy Spirit. It is a piece of the Word of God. It tells you by its very nature of being in this book that it, this is authorized by God himself. And it's the Holy Spirit speaking. That makes sense? So that hopefully what that does is that will keep you away from saying stupid things like sarcasm does not belong in teaching because you'd have to throw out at least four or five chapters of this book and tear them out and throw them away. 
Okay? So sarcasm, when it's required, is a way of confronting somebody in an abrupt way. So Paul's doing this because what's happened is the Corinthians have become cosmic. Okay? We call that worldly. They have become worldly believers. And, and we have, um, that's hard for us to um, understand because there are so many worldly believers in the church today that um, it's difficult for us to discern one from the other. Okay? It, it is so acceptable to be worldly as a Christian that we can't tell one from the other at all. Okay. This is very similar to first, and I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some references that I'm not going to show you. But I'll give you the references if you want to see them, write them down. i got lots of them. But I'm going to give them to you. We're not going to go over them because we don't have time. But I will put some, the ones I actually do want to look at up here. One of the references is, is the similarity of this to 1 Corinthians 3.1. And what that verse says is that Paul says, I really want to give you meat and potatoes. I want to, I want to give you real doctrine. I want to give you something you're really going to put your teeth into. But you know something? I can't do that. I have to give you a milk because you're a baby. That's what he says. That's sarcasm too. So that's what he's saying here. Very, very similar. Best 18. Okay, so I'm going to give you 18. You take my word for it. Richard's a really great guy. That's what verse 18 says. Um, okay, so I'll give you. 18 says, uh, since many are boasting in the way the world does, I will boast too. So he's kind of making, he's continuing a sarcasm and says, when people, and the word here is, uh, <clears throat> what it means is that the, the wording is, according to the flesh, many people boast. Okay? And the flesh means like, um, like uh, I'm handsome, I'm beautiful, I've got money, I'm smart. That's fleshly boasting. Okay, so you know what it is. Um, and that's what he's saying here. He says, I'm going to boast in the same way the world does. I'm going to show you all my accomplishments about how, what a great guy I am. That's Paul's doing here. And why is he doing that? He's not doing it because he wants you to know it or because he's trying to boast. The reality is that many of the things you will hear in this piece right we're doing, you will not hear anywhere else in the Bible. Why is that true? Because Paul does not boast. He does not boast. He does not talk about what a great guy he is. You know, he's the Hebrew of Hebrews. He's got all these great qualifications that he talks about in Philippians, but he, does, he only mentions them one time. And the reason he only mentions them one time is that in reality, he could sit there and say, you know something? In our age, I am the greatest Hebrew in the world. And that would be true. He could also go, I am the most... I know more about Bible doctrine and principles of God than any Christian in the world. And that would be true. But he doesn't do that. You would think that if he were boasting, he'd be bringing it up all the time to show you his qualifications. Okay? But he does not do that. Okay? So he does not do that. So his use of sarcasm is to jar the Corinthians into a sense of shame about their behavior with the Judaizers. Okay? The boasting of the Judaizers impressed the foolish believers. <clears throat> boasting always impresses foolish people. It does. You know, if I tell you, how, if, I, if I told you, you know, I have a degree from here, and I did this, and I studied over here, you'd all be going, oh, he's so smart. But you should be saying he's an idiot. That's what you should be saying. Because worldly boasting does not belong in this church. It doesn't belong in any church. It counts for zero. Whether you've gone to seminary, whether you have a PhD, means nothing. It is whether you teach the word of God. That's it. 
None of the apostles to Israel were preachers. They didn't take any studies, zero, except what Jesus gave them for those three years. And the only exception for the apostles to the church was Paul. Paul, the murderer. Paul, the guy who put people in jail. The prosecutor of the church. The chief of sinners. He was the guy who went to seminary. That's sarcasm, by the way. Just let you know. He would say the same thing. What he's doing, he's holding up, he's holding up, he's, he's criticizing the Corinthians. Okay, and he's doing that by saying, you held up the evil Judaizers as like they were special. Okay? And the true men of God, Timothy, Apollo, Paul, you mocked them. You rejected them. One of the things that happens when Christians become worldly is they reject, they reject the truth of God and they accept the wisdom of the world. That's what they do. The wisdom of the world is always creeping up on you in everything that you do, every part of your life. It's trying to make a headway. Whether you're watching it on television, whether you're listening in the music, whether you're in the workplace, its job is to pull you from God's side to its side because that's where Satan wants you. Satan does not want to do you in. He wants to neutralize you. That's his greatest goal. And he wants you to be happy that you're neutralized. Okay? 19. More sarcasm. This is going to be sarcasm through this whole thing. So 19. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. The fools refers to the Judaizers. And the wise is the sar sarcasm he's using about the Corinthians. And he has here, this, this word here says, you patiently endure, you permit. And what it says, the, the grammar of it tells you that you keep on permitting. You keep on allowing this. You didn't just allow it one time. There's a tense called present active indicative. It means that you keep on doing it. If they'd only done it once, they would use a different tense called an aorist. And it's actually spelled differently. But in reality, he says, you keep on doing it, and you do it over and over again. One of, one of my jokes in my class, and most people my sons, it says, it's okay to be stupid, don't stay stupid. Okay? When you make a mistake, fix it. Orient yourself to the word of God. That's what he, God knows we're all idiots. He knows that. He says, remember, remember what Abraham says? He says, when he's pleading to God, what does he say? He says, Lord, you know that I am just dust. That's who we are. That's who we are. That's how we're designed. We don't have to stay that way, but that's the original design. That's not the original design. Actually, that's the, that's the desecrated design when Adam sinned. Okay. So he's saying you patiently endure. And he uses this word, um, the word fool here is the word for stupid. Okay. It's, it's Ephron is what it is. It's, it, it actually means in Christianity what happens is when a person turns from God, they become a couple things. They become, I'll use it, they become psychotic. They, they, and what I mean by psychotic is that the reason that you notice it is not because they're different than the world. I mean, they're, they're, they, but what happens is that when you learn the word of God and you live by the word of God, you're stable. You're a stable person because God is stable. His word is stable. His principles are table, stable. And those who take them, they are stable. When it says in the word of God, you shall be self-controlled, that's what it's talking about. Okay? But what happens when people give it up? They start wobbling. They start becoming emotional. If you look at the world today, if you watch television, what you see is all these psychotic, emotional people. There's a lot of crazy people out there saying crazy, crazy things. And they do that 
because the psychosis, the, psych, the, the quacky part, is a, is a result of rejecting God and his stability. Okay? He also uses the word here. Um, uh, it says you gladly. That word is not gladly. Is that you do it with pleasure. The word is hedon. Hedon, hedon. If you're familiar with the word hedonist, that's an English word. It means to do something for pleasure. So he says, you not only do it, you do it with pleasure. Okay? That's uh, serious sarcasm. <laughs> and then on the other side, he says, uh, since you are so wise. Okay? And the wise part is pushing them to their sarcasm. He has sarcasm, but he's talking about their arrogance. He says, you can't tell the truth of God if you fell over it. Okay? That's what he's telling him there. You think you're wise, but you're fools. Okay? Now, what's happening here is that, if, if you remember we talked, uh, some of the back, what happened is that the Judaizers actually, uh, Judea, I mean the Corinthians, actually kind of turned back. They turned back to, 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 to Paul. Remember that was about five, six weeks ago. They turned back to Paul. So the question you should be asking yourself is that why is Paul doing what he's doing now, Right? Uh, I'd say, well, it's kind of like rubbing their nose in it, okay? Because what's happened here, this is what happens to Christians. So when you see it, you'll understand it. What happens is Christians become stable when they walk with God, when they attend church, when they study their Bible, when they pray, when they do the things they're supposed to do to have God's presence in their lives, okay? They do that. When they get away from the church, they start becoming unstable, okay? And their brain doesn't work right anymore. They start saying some of the things they would have never said before they say it, Okay? And what's happening now is that right now, that's where, the, that's where the Corinthians are at. Their brains are unstable. And what Paul is trying to do is he's bringing them back, even though they know they did something wrong, he is bringing them back through doctrine and say, I have to make you stable again. So this is why I'm, this is why I'm chewing you out, is because you need to know these principles. You need to know what you did wrong so you don't do it again. That makes sense? So that's what he's doing. He's trying to make them back being stabilized. Verse 20. In fact, you even put up with anyone, Judaizers here, who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts airs on or slaps you in the face. Hmm. Let me read you how that makes a little more sense. I'm going to kind of give a little different translation. It says, for you love it if, and you do, See, if is the first class condition. It means if and you do. When we see ifs, it's like, oh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But that's not how the, the New Testament is. New Testament has four ifs in it. This is if and you do. When the, the best example of it is that when Satan was asking Jesus in a desert, he says, if you are the son of God, turn these rocks into bread. Well, you know who Satan is, right? Satan was an angel who knew Jesus in heaven. So you know he knows what it is. That is not an if, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. That's a if, that's a first class condition. If and you are the son of God. Okay, that's what that means. So this is, he's telling them right here, it says, you do put up this. It's not if you put up with it, you do put up with this. What do they put up with? There's four ifs. No, five. Count that five, that's five, yeah. There's five ifs. He says, he says here, he says, you love it if anyone enslaves you, if anyone uh, devours your soul, parentheses there, if anyone continually uh, takes you from, where am I at there? If anyone continue takes from you, sorry, somebody continually takes from you, if anyone constantly exalts himself, okay, bro bragging, if anyone constantly slaps you in the face, okay? Um, 
there's actually five ifs there, and each of these are divided. Okay, so what he's saying is, that if somebody subjects you to slavery, because when you admire somebody for who they are, in reality, in the church, when you raise them up, you are essentially a slave to them. Now, if you don't believe that, look at the word doulos that we are all familiar with. When we exalt Jesus Christ, we are his servants and his slaves. That's what the word means. Okay? And that's what it's saying here. So the difference between being a slave to the world is horrible. Being a slave and a servant of Christ is wonderful. Okay? Um, the other part is that they plunder their soul. The Judaizers plunder their soul. They continually take things from the Corinthians, but they never give back. They constantly talk about how great they are, but they never talk about how good the Corinthians are. And they are constantly slapping you in the face over and over and over again. This right here is the price of being a worldly believer. When you are in a wrong relationship with somebody, that's what it looks like. That makes sense? This is true for human beings, all human beings. When you are in a relationship with the wrong person, it looks like that. That is the price of slavery. Okay? The tragedy is that the reason they are in this part is because they have rejected their right pastor and teacher, and they've accepted an evil one. This is what happens when people are not in a right relationship with God, when they decide they don't know what church they're supposed to be in. They feel these things. When they're in a wrong relationship with a person, they feel these same ways. Okay? Verse 21, he says, to my shame I admit that we are too weak for that. Notice the exclamation point. That's sarcasm, okay? One of the reasons it comes up this way is because they were, the, Jew, the, the Corinthians accused Paul of being weak. That's what they accused him of. One of the things they accused him of. So he's saying, oh, you know, we're way too weak. And it sounds better when I say it, huh? Um, but that's what he's saying. He says, and I am speaking like a fool. He's making a joke again. I also dare to boast about it. So he's kind of, he's kind of poking them over and over again is what he's doing here. If, 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 if it were, um, what I would translate and say, I'd say, I speak according to the standards, am I in the right spot? 20, yeah. Of the standards of dishonor <clears throat> because we ourselves have been weak. So he's kind of saying, you, you think we have been, but in reality, we have not. But I am speaking this way to you, so I confirm what you think, but in reality, I'm poking fun at you. Okay, does that make sense? Um, those of us who have had parents who do that, we get that immediately. If, you, if, you, if you've had a really sweet parent too long, maybe you don't get that. Um, my kids get it immediately. I wonder what that means. It says, um, well, what, um, whatever means, uh, whatever means anyone uh, to be courage, and he's talking about the Judaizers, and he says in parentheses, I speak foolishly, I am courageous. What he's saying, he says, he's really saying here that, the, that, that Paul has true courage. And I'll tell you what true courage is. True courage is when you speak the truth to somebody, no matter how uncomfortable it is. That's courage. People don't like it, but that's courage. And what the Judaizers would do is that they would kind of, they, they would kind of uh, get the, uh, the Corinthians to sympathize with them. And they would be brassy. You know what brassy is? Brassy is when you have no reason to get into somebody's face, but you do it anyway to make, make believe that you have some kind of power. 
that you have some kind of strength. But in reality, it's just audacity. It's just rudeness. And that's what they have. So when you look at the two of them, you have somebody with true strength like Paul, who the Corinthians have been saying has no strength, but is weak. And on the other hand, you have them idolizing these brassy, rude people, the Judaizers, instead of the one they should be listening to. That makes sense? Then he's going to go through a list. What we're going to go through is we're going to have a list of things. He says, um, he says are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Uh, are they Abraham's seed? So am I. So what does this really mean? What this means is that if you look at what happens on the Judaizer side, the Corinthians were admiring them as Hebrews because of the Hebrew culture. It's kind of the foundation of Christianity. Okay? They, were advised, they were admiring them because they're Jews. They're just like Jesus. They're just like Abraham. Okay? And he says, and, and they're actual true Jews. They're, they're not just nationally Israelites, but they're, they're actually racial Jews. Oh, wow. He's mocking them. Now look at all these categories. These categories are culture, nationality, and race. They count for nothing with God. Zero. Today, we have people who somehow, they, they, they call, and I'll just, I'm, I'm not poking, maybe I'm poking a little fun. <laughs> Messianic Jews. You have a lot of Christians who are going, oh, you know, I go to the Seder, and I go to the Passover, and I do all these things. Notice that Paul never did that. One of the reasons he did that is because there's only one person to be worshipped in Christianity, and that's Jesus Christ. Okay? It doesn't matter. Another thing is that it doesn't matter that we have Filipinos here, we have Hispanics here, we have Caucasian here, we have. It doesn't matter. Race means nothing in Christianity. Zero. Okay? And so this is how you know how messed up they are. Okay? You know that they are holding something. They're like, oh, you're Hebrews. That's why, that's why he's poking fun at them. What they've gone from, the hysterical part, is that what they have gone from, the horrible part, is they have gone from being Greeks. If you don't think about Greeks, they're absolutely immoral. Not Greeks today, but Greeks back in this time. This is called the Hellenistic Empire. Um, they, had, they used to get upset because they had to have sex with their wife so they could have kids because they had all these girlfriends. Okay? That was their morals. It gives you some idea of their moral um, homosexuality, bestiality. All common. This is common. You can walk out your church. In fact, what was even better than their churches? They actually had it in their church. Okay? They're absolutely immoral. So what happens is that they go from these immoral Greeks, Hellenistic Greeks. They go to Christianity, which is holy, good, and proper. And holiness is God's goal. Grace is God's goal. And now we have them moved over to the Judaizers, where it's not about grace anymore. It's about works. It's about what you do. It's about what you bring to the party. They become morals, moral people. I like moral people if they're unbelievers. I like holy people if they're Christians. Okay? Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? And then he said, put the principle, I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. He's boasting again. He's bringing up this list. They brought up the list. I'm going to embarrass you with my list is what he's saying. 
He says, I have worked much harder, <clears throat> been in prison more frequently. That's not something we Christians brag about, huh? Yeah, I've been a Christian. I've been in jail lots of times. <laughs> um, have been flogged more se uh, severely and have been exposed to death again and again. Um, interesting, this word right here is um, the... Um, I bring this up for fun. Where they say they are servants of Christ. The word is diakonos. It's where we get the word deacon. Deacon is also used many times in the Bible for a minister, okay, a pastor. The difference between a diakonos, a deacon, and a pastor is position. Okay? We know that Stephen was a fantastic teacher, and he was a deacon, but he was not a pastor. Okay? And we have people who are pastors. That is a position they hold. It's not because they teach. That's just one. They have the authority of the church that they're in. That's the difference. So what he's saying, he says, are they a preacher, teacher of the word of God? Are they a preacher of Christ? What are you saying there? He says, so am I. He's probably, Paul is probably the greatest teacher who has ever lived in all of time. Nobody has doctrine like him in the scriptures. His epistles are absolutely the soundest doctrine. Peter even says that in 2 Peter where he says, he says, yeah, Paul's stuff is really hard, but it's great. And anybody who criticizes him, criticizes his doctrine are fools and should stay away from them. So that tells you, that's another apostle talking about one there. So what he says here, uh, the part where he says, I must be out of my mind, he actually uses the word, um, he says, I keep on chattering like a monkey. Okay, he doesn't use the word monkey, but we get that. He says, I, I'm sounding like a crazy person. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, you, nowadays, you get to go down the street and you see people just talking to themselves. Just arguing stuff. That's what he's talking about. Those are the people he's talking about. Um, that's why he says, I'm out, like I'm out of my mind. <clears throat> um, but, but note that, that even though he makes this joke about him being crazy, he's, he's talking like these other people. And he's doing it for with the power and the approval of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's an important thing to understand. He says here that he labors, the word for labor here, he says, I do more than they do. In fact, I work to absolute exhaustion. That's the word that's here. He's wearisome labor, and I do it more, and I do it abundantly. The, people get things confused about, a lot of times, the pastor spends the most amount of time studying for a one-hour uh, crazy as it sounds, I've probably spent 20 hours studying for this, but I'm kind of stupid. But and and then I know Joe and and Charles. You spend hours. That that's actually what you do. You you find all those little nooks and crannies in your life to study because that's the most important thing that a pastor does. If he doesn't feed the sheep, he's not a pastor. Okay. It's nice when he can visit. But in reality, his job's to teach, is feeding the sheep. So <clears throat> Paul's showing in this thing right here, where he's really saying, he says, I labor to exhaustion, which is studying and teaching and devotionals and all that stuff he does. He says, I've received more stripes. I've, it means that he's been beaten more. I've been in prison. Remember he was in prison in Philippi? Remember that's when he, they put him in with, uh, because he was uh, chased out the, uh, the demon of the girl? And he was in Jerusalem. He was in Caesarea in prison. He was in Rome in prison twice. I'd really like to see this put on more Christians' resumes. Oh, I mean, doing it for the Lord, of course. <laughs> um, he says that he's been wounded five times by the Jews, three times by the Romans. That'll come up later. 
And he has been, the word is, he is constantly facing death. He lives his life with the perils of death continuously. One of the interesting things about Paul is that Paul is not like most Christians. Because of his duty and because of what God gave him, if you remember what happens when he talked to Ananias after he'd been saved, he'd just been saved. Remember when, how, how the Lord comforted Ananias? He says, don't worry, Ananias. This guy, Paul, he is going to suffer more than anybody has suffered. That's what he says. That's the a, that's a pat on the back. It's okay, Paul. Go talk to him. He'll be all right. And, um, and that's true. He does. He suffers. That's not normal for Christianity, you know. It's not normal for us to suffer. People think it is, but it's not. Suffering is given to us for two reasons as believers. We either do them because we do stupid things, we do stupid things, and we get the consequences of being stupid, like everybody else, or God is testing us for something. He makes us suffer to become a blessing. When you take any suffering that you have and you turn it over to the Lord, it becomes a blessing. Even if you started it yourself, even if you did the dumb part, even if you, you do something, the dumb part, one of my favorite examples of that is Chuck Colson. For those of you guys who know him, he was the guy who lied and the president went to jail, went to prison, and we just destroyed his life. So what did he do? He turned back to the Lord, started prison ministries. It is a wonderful, wonderful ministry. So even though he got himself there, God made when he got there a blessing. That's what God offers us. Even when we're stupid, which Christians can really be stupid, we can do it as, better, as good as anybody else. Even when we are, when we turn back to the Lord and we do it his way, it becomes a blessing. Twenty-four. Now he's going to start doing the list here. It says, five times I received um, from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Um, and this is under the authority of the Jews. Now, if, you, if you're wondering where these things are at, and you haven't been able to find them, it's because Paul does not brag about them. He brings them up for a very specific purpose. You would think five of these would show up all over the place, huh? But they don't. They don't because he's not a braggart. He is using things that have happened to him, the sufferings he has had, in order to make a point of these Judaizers who said, oh, yes, yeah, we had people hate us, and they were so mean to us. And the Corinthians would go, oh, you're such a good believer. Oh, we love you. Christians do that rubbish today. If you don't believe it, look at Facebook. I suffer. You don't suffer, you're stupid. Yeah. If, you make a, if you quit your job because you don't like your boss, you're just stupid and you don't have money because you did that. That's not the, that's not the Lord, that's not Satan chasing you. That's you being stupid. So we still have it, is my point. Okay. Um, and I just want to make a quick reference to the, the um, 40 lashes minus 1 comes from reference only Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 3. And what this was, is this was the punishment of the Jews when they were decided in the judge that they would give them 40 lashes. Okay, But the minus 1 was because if the guy gave them the lashes, the, the problem is that there's a penalty. If you go past 40, there's a penalty associated with the guy who does the lashes. So what the people who gave the lashes would always do, they'd subtract one. Just to make sure they'd rather count one down then accidentally do one over and then get the punishment that they had just given out. Okay? So that's where 39 lashes comes from, just for, for fun and, uh, and hiccups. Um, and besides, it's, um, it's also extremely painful. 40 lashes, 
40 lashes isn't like a, something simple and sweet like a belt. For those of you, I'm sure there's lots of guys in here who grew up when I did. A belt was a very common thing for discipline. And, uh, but this wasn't like a belt. This was the stuff that had things on the end of it that ripped your skin off your, your back. Okay, so it was not the uh, little sissy stuff. Three times, this is the one, the, the Romans one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. Uh, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Uh, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like any fun. Um, the, the, the rods were, were the ones that were, um, well, remember, when, when, remember when the, Philippi, uh, the, uh, the Philippians beat Paul? Remember that? They gave him, remember, he was, remember he was in the prison and they had beaten him and he was talking about the, if it hurt and stuff like that. Um, that was illegal for them to do because Paul was a Roman citizen. And it was unusual because not many Jews were Roman citizens. Roman citizens had rights. And one of those rights is they could never be beaten. They weren't allowed to be beaten. They also were not allowed to be put on the cross, which is why Paul was beheaded, because that's how a citizen could be, could be executed. They wouldn't suffer on the cross. They'd be beheaded and dead like that. But that's why, if you remember what happens when, when they found out that Paul, remember the, remember the story in Acts when they find out he's a, he's a uh, Roman citizen? What do they try to do? Oh, it's okay. Why don't you get out of here? Yeah, we'll just walk, walk you down and see you. Bye. Sorry about that. That's what they try to do that. Because in those days, if you did something improper and you violated the law, a law against a Roman citizen, you could have your, the word's autonomy, you could have your right to rule removed from the entire citizen for one act like that. That's how, serious it's, that's how serious the Roman Empire was. The Roman Empire followed its laws, something that we really could learn to do, follow our own laws. We don't need more laws. We just need to follow the ones we have, right? Now, this is, um, this is the piece where, where um, the stone part um, on, um, on 25. So this, this is a point where it says, since some of the Jews came to Antioch and Iconium, and won, uh, won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking that he was dead. They didn't think he was dead. He was dead. Okay. Uh, but after the disciples uh, had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Uh, the next day, he and Barnabas left. So what happened here is he actually died. And we, we, we know that word because the word litho that's used here for stoning is the word to be killed by stones. It's not the word to be having rocks thrown at you. Is the word that says you were stoned to death. Okay. Um, the just for a reference here, the shipwrecks. One of them we're familiar with. Um, there's actually five of them. There's not four. No, there's four of them, not three, because the act in Acts 27 that happens after he wrote this. Um, he actually got shipwrecked. You guys are familiar with that one in Acts 27. But if you want to look at it, that's another piece where, remember, he's the guy on the ship, and, the, and they're all trying to get off the ship. And he says, an angel came to me in the middle of the night, and he said, if you get off this ship, you will die. So stay on the ship. God says he will preserve all, I think it's 140, all 140 souls, and you will live if you obey what I just told you. And remember, they, what they do is they obey it, and what happens? They all live. That was one of them. That was the fourth one after this stuff. No extra credit for that one. <clears throat> Verse 26. I have been constantly on the move. This means I've been constantly traveling. So this is the dangers of traveling. If you look, we're just going through this list and list and list of things. Um, he says, I've been, I've been constantly traveling, which is what he does in the missionary journeys and all that. And I have been in danger 
That word in danger is the word, I've been in peril, to be in peril, okay, to be in danger. It is referenced eight times in this one verse, okay? I've been in danger with rivers. I've been in danger with bandits. I've been in danger with my fellow Jews. I've been in danger uh, with the Gentiles. I've been in danger of the city. I've been in danger in the country. I've been in danger of the sea. I've been in danger from false believers, okay? So why is he doing this? He is listening. He is countering the whiny stuff that the Judaizers have done. They said they didn't like me. I was persecuted. Paul saying, wait a minute, you know, I had, we had pirates that were trying to kill us. You know, they had people trying to kill us on the river. We had people killing us in the city. We had people who killed us in the desert. They just followed us and tried to kill us. Anybody who's read some of the missionary journeys know that that's absolutely true. So the whole point is that his resume so outweighs the people that they're listening to that the Corinthians should be ashamed. That's the whole purpose of it. And they kind of follow a, um, a piece here. There's the two, they're, they're actually in pairs. First pair is water, second pair is race, third pair is location. And then one's kind of a pivotal from the verse before. And the false brothers are the Judaizers. There's another verse in there, sneaked up. Um, I have labored and toiled, and I have, gone, and I have often gone without sleep. I have, go, I have known hunger and thirst, and I have often, often gone without food. I've been cold <clears throat> and naked. Um, let me read it to you. I think it's probably a little better. It says, um, in weariness and painfulness and often lack of sleep, I have been hungry, starving. I have been desperate for water, dying of thirst. I have, and I have lack of food. This is for his, he's actually having poor health as a result of this. And I have also been cold and naked here. When he says naked, he says, I don't have clothes. I have, do not have clothes to wear. Uh, you know, that's, um, I, I'm, I'm been reading a book on George Washington talking about Valley Forge. And one of the most horrible things that happened to his army was not having clothes in the wintertime in Valley Forge. It was horrible. These men, there were hundreds of them. They didn't have food. They didn't have clothes. They had frostbite. That's what he's talking about. It is a huge, horrible suffering. All I could do when I was writing the book was write, shame on the Congress, shame on Congress. It's stupid people. Never mind. But that, that they would do to people that. So anyway, that's what he's talking about here. Got off it a little bit. Um, 28. You see, besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concerns for the churches. Now, this is, this is kind of, uh, doesn't, this isn't like, this isn't like what, what, what Joe has, although it's similar. It's not the concern that Charles has or any of the deacons have, because in reality, people who lead in this church have great, great concern for the church and for the people of the church. They spend lots of hours. Nobody ever sees them do it. They just do it. Okay? But it's not like this. What he's talking about is that the concerns, he, he, says, uh, um, he says, apart from all the outside things going on, I have daily pressures. Every day I have daily pressures of all the churches in the Roman Empire that I've been to about what's going on there, about the horrible things that are happening to the church, about them being persecuted, starved, about people coming in like the Judaizers and the Gnostics and the other ones who are trying to move the ministry away from Christ. Okay? So he has what we call, the word here is for a deep soul anxiety. Not an anxiety that he doesn't trust the Lord. He does. But one that just bears on him. 
You know, you, you, if you are a parent or have been a parent, you know what that feels like. Your kids can be great, but when they leave the house, you worry about them. It burdens you. You think about it. You trust the Lord, but it weighs on you. And that's what he's talking about. All the churches in the Roman Empire are on his shoulders. He has deep concern. So not like the Judaizers who are just trying to take advantage of this one church. He has the anxieties, not just the things that he's listed, but on the church as a whole, are always on his shoulders. 29. He says, um, who is weak? I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? I do not inwardly burn. Now, I don't know about you, but that made no sense to me. <clears throat> but what it really means is that when, he, when he's talking about, he, he actually brings the same word uh, weak up twice. One, he uses it in a way, he says, um, which, which kind of person is weak? And he's talking about the Judaizers here. Um, and then he says, and then he says, and the other one is kind of a, where he's talking about himself. He says, you know, I do not feel weak, meaning that, um, that, that when, you, when you have uh, a weakness, when he has his weakness, when Paul feels weakness, he knows who can, who can take care of that weakness. Does that make sense? It's kind of like we're talking about. What Paul knows is the principle, and he'll bring it up more, is that because I am weak, I am strong. It's when I am strong that I am weak. It's the exact opposite. Okay. Um, he also, this word says, who is led into sin. This is a piece that's actually for them. What it means is says, I have, not been, um, I have not been brought into sin because I sympathize with these Judaizers. I don't have a sympathy for them because of what they're doing. And what that means is to be led into sin. It's when, example what's happening is that, is that because they have allowed the Judaizers to elicit in them sympathy, they have allowed that sympathy emotion to allow themselves to sin. This is very common today. A lot of times people have compassion. You know, they go, oh, I'm so worried. I'm going to get myself in trouble with this one, so let's just get over it. I'm so worried about these kids at the border. They're having their children taken away from them. Is that a horrible thing? It absolutely is. Okay? But I didn't take them to the border. Their parents did. Now, if you did that, they would take away your kids like that. Not a blink. Do children get taken away from their parents? Yes, a lot of times. A lot of times it's the best thing they ever had, them, had to happen to them. Now, you may not believe that, but I have six children who have been taken away from their parents that I am their parent, and God has blessed me with that. And they were supposed to be taken away because their parents were not good people. They had struggles at that time in their life. They would not have lived. So, that's the whole point. The whole point is that don't let your emotions get you into a sin to co-sign something that is anti-God, that is wrong. Think. Think. That's what the Word of God is supposed to do. We're not people who get emotional. We are people who may get emotional. We may have feelings, but we do what we're told to do because that's what Christ did. Remember Christ? The Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, if it's possible, take this from me. Oops. I think I did that last time. Well, the batteries fall out this close, right? So what's the point about that? Jesus knew that he was not going to be crucified. That didn't bother him. As a lamb goes before the shearers and does not say a word. 
Okay? What bothered him, as the pure person of the, of the universe, the only pure one, is the sins of all of ours would be put on him. That was excruciating. Yet, knowing that perfectly, he did not take a step back. He said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. That's Christianity. That's obeying God. 30. He says, if I must boast, first class condition, and I must, <clears throat> I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Hmm. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Yeah. He says, if it is necessary for me to keep on boasting, I will boast about things that concern my own personal weakness, my frailties, my suffering. Uh, what Paul's trying to do here is that he is boasting about his sufferings because his sufferings leads him and us to God's grace. That's where sufferings are supposed to lead you to, to the grace of God. And that's his whole point here. He says, the, o- the only way to be strong is to be weak, because then God's provisions are there for you. If you are strong, God won't get in your way. That's bad news, you know. God, whenever I'm doing something, whenever I feel really powerful and strong, I'm going to do this. God says, I'll take a step back. You just do it, Rich, to see what happens. Well, if you have my experience, you know that that really goes ugly. Um, God's like that. It's either you or him. Either you get your way or he gets his way. There's nothing in between the two. If you ever insist on your will, God takes a step back. He says, if I boast, I must boast of my weaknesses. Because of my weaknesses, I show who God is. He says, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who who, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. Paul's calling into two witnesses here, right? Who are those two witnesses? I call on God the Father, and I call on Jesus Christ as a witness that what I say is true. That's a pretty good character reference. Um. He says, they know I am not lying. Now, the word lying is lying here. The word is pseudo. We know the word pseudo. Um, he says, I'm not a phony. I'm not, I'm not lying to you. I'm not telling you something that's not true. And, and that, that is reference to the doctrines that he has taught the Corinthians. What he's saying is that I've taught you. God knows. And it uses the perfect tense, which means that God has always known that what I teach you is the absolute truth. And they are my witness that I do that. Okay? He's talking to Corinthians here. 32. And he makes another, this is, I think this is one of his last examples. We'll see. <clears throat> he says, um, in Damascus, the governor called King Aretas, uh, the king of the city of uh, Damascus, again, in reality, guarded in order to arrest me. And this doesn't mean much to us, but this king was one of the great kings of the Nabataeans. He was a great king. In fact, uh, he was a king that was, um, he was a, actually a made king by, uh, by Caligula and, um, and kept there. And he was a very big deal because he actually survived Tiberius who wanted to remove him 
But Caligula came and saved him. But he was a great king. And everybody at the time that Paul's speaking this knows this name and knows how great he is. Now, he's talking about the governor specifically. And he uses the word here. He says, they, they guarded the city of Damascus. The, the word here isn't really guarded. Um, let me see if I have a verse here. I hope I didn't do it. I did. Okay. Um, it isn't really the word guarded. It is a word for a garrison. And a garrison is a unit. It's the amount of people that you would have to guard an entire city. So what's his point here? His point is that I was so important to the governor. And the governor here is what they call an ethnarch. It is a person who is a, a particular race who is guarding that city who has been appointed by the king. And what happened is that guy ordered, asked the king to give him a whole garrison of soldiers to guard the city of Damascus so they could catch Paul. Kind of important, huh? I mean, even the dog catcher doesn't look for me. So here's, here's the piece right here where it comes from. He says, and, uh, after taking some food, remember this part right here? This is actually where he became, uh, um, um, not, it's, it's kind of between where he, where he, uh, where he got saved. Well, let's read it anyway. <clears throat> he says, um, Saul spent several days uh, with the disciples in Damascus. And once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus uh, is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, uh, isn't he the man who, who, who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on his name? Hasn't he come here to take them uh, as prisoners uh, to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more. Now, between these two, there's two pieces here, okay? Um, between verse 23, 22 and verse 23 is three years, okay? Um, so he says, Paul grew more and more. This is, this is right after he became a Christian. So what happened, as soon as Paul understood who Jesus Christ was, he came from the being the person who was murdering the Christians to saying, I remember he was blind for three days. He's, he didn't see anything. He was quiet, barely took any food. And then three days later, he's like, I know who Jesus Christ is. He knew all the Mosaic law. He knew it all. He was one of the greatest Pharisees that had ever lived in his time. He took all the stuff that he did wrong and learned incorrectly in the Old Testament, and he put it all together, and he says, I know Jesus is the Christ. He is the one. That's why he comes out of here like gangbusters. He comes out, he's just, he starts talking to everybody, Jesus is the Lord, Jesus. He's driving people crazy. And everybody's looking and saying, watch that, that's Paul. Paul's the guy who kills Christians. Why is he saying these things? They're confused. Okay. So on, after three years, okay, right here it says, 23, after many days had gone by. There's three years in there. Okay. Uh, and we know that by comparing Galatians something. I'll have to find it. Um, any days, he says, by the time the conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. So what happened is that after the three years, uh, Paul actually went into the Arabian desert for three years and was taught by Jesus Christ as the resurrected Christ in that desert by himself. Okay? And it's actually referenced in two verses. Um, but I can't find them. But I will have them in there somewhere. Okay, so what happens is that he does that. He gets the entire doctrine which explains a lot of things. If you, know, if you know who Paul is, you understand that he is the leader of the mystery doctrines of the church. Nobody else has them. He learned that 
from Christ. So anyway, so he comes out, he becomes even more powerful. Now he is a problem in the empire. Okay? And that's what's happening here. This is why they're trying to kill him. Because now he has gone from being their greatest advocate of the Jews to being the greatest teacher and preacher of Jesus Christ, their enemy. Okay? So it says, after enemies are gone, um, uh, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul, Saul learned of their plan day and night. They kept a close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. Um, this is the piece here. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket to an opening in the wall. Okay, I think that's the last piece. Um, and that's, that's the reference here where they're trying to get him down. They, they, why, they, why, they go through, why doesn't he walk through the gate? Because this king and his governor have put an army around. They are guarding every exit. So the only way to save Paul is this little tiny opening where they shoot the, you know, they shoot the, the arrows out of him, they shoot the spears, and they throw stuff out. That little tiny opening, that's what they do. They put him in a basket and say, here, Paul. Um, which, believe it or not, it's actually pretty funny. And now he's going to make jokes of it. Uh, his joke is, is, but I was lowered in a basket uh, from a window. It's not actually a window. It's a hole in the wall. They didn't have windows. Um, it's a little hole where they shoot through and they dump things out of to, on the enemy. And I slipped through his hands. Um, the Holy Spirit, it, you have to step back for just a second and say, can there be anything more helpless and weak and embarrassing and somebody luring you through a basket out of a wall. It's like, that's it, Paul? That's, you told us all that to tell us this? Because this is the most vulnerable thing that there is. He's, 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 he's running away with a basket. Okay? And Paul and the Holy Spirit put this together because they want to show you the vulnerability of Paul. He's absolutely vulnerable. But God finds a way out in that vulnerability. Okay? They lower him through a basket. All the bragging for lowering in a basket. It shows the absolute grace of God. That's its point. It says, I've done all these things. All these things are happening. And guess what? God sought it right and fit for me to be lowered out of a basket down to the wall so I could tell you that that is who I really am. That's who we are. We're not different from Paul. We're like those people in the basket. We don't like to admit it. We want to be, we have an air of confidence and we've got this, and we've got that. But in reality, God sees us in the same way. We all have to be lowered out the little basket. Um, and I love that part. True Christianity is done in absolute helplessness. That's how it's done. There's not a second way. There's nobody powerful, only God. Okay? What's funny about this part to me is that um, Paul went from being the greatest legalist to the greatest grace person in the Bible. Judaism is all about legalism, and he was that person. This is what I like about this piece here. This is a very similar piece there. It says, um, what is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing that Christ Jesus, my Lord, whose sake I have lost all things, 
I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. He's saying the same thing here. What he's saying is that I have all these things. There's not many people in the world who can compare this list. He says, all these things are like rubbish to me. And that's what he's saying here. Remember, if you remember the piece before this, he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. My father was a Hebrew Pharisee. My grandfather was a Hebrew Pharisee. He goes, he tells all these things. And he says, but I consider all those great honors that men would give me as rubbish. That word garbage is not garbage. That word right there is, in the original language, is the word poop. I don't have to tell you anymore about that, right? That's what it is. He says, I consider it to be poop, you know. Um, just so you get a real feel for it. Um, and, and we should too. All things compared to knowing Christ are rubbish. Okay. Um, verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1. So we're getting here. Oh, boy. It goes faster, I think. Um, Paul's vision in his thorn. Um, I must go on boasting. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. Now, actually, where that where that comma, where that comma is is where chapter eleven should have ended, because as you can see it actually starts another thought. Okay, so it actually should have been cut right there because that's part of the other one. So it says here it is not it is not necessary for me to keep on boasting, but there is nothing to be gained for me. I will do it. But there's nothing to be gained. And I think he's shown you that. He has this huge list. And what he's more saying is that, see that list? On the other hand, God saved me by sending me out a basket of a wall. So he's telling you that doesn't really mean anything. And the only reason he is boasting here is to embarrass the Corinthians because they have held up people so high who have not even had a shade of comparison to the Apostle Paul. Um, but this is the next cool part. The second part right here is really cool. Um, he says, um, I will come to visions and revelation from the Lord. Because he's actually starting a next piece here. Um, and, and what he means, this is the second part of the comparison. But it's a comparison that's really important to us. Um, he, says, he says, I haven't even started yet. Let me start with the visions and the revelations. Okay? <clears throat> um, apostasia is a vision. That's the word. But it's an English word, too. And what it means is that it's when somebody is awake, yet they see something. This is what happens to um, Daniel. It's what happens to John in the, in the book of Revelation. It means to be in a state of ecstatic, which means that you feel absolute pleasure, absolute clarity. But unlike being on drugs, your, your, your brain is absolutely clear. You understand more than you would ever understand normally. So that's what that is. Um, some of the, some of the, the th this does not happen to Revelation anymore because it's not writing anymore the Bible. But this, this principle actually does happen in Christianity if you're familiar with Stephen. If you remember Stephen, remember Stephen? And he's, and, and he's being stoned to death. It's in Acts, Acts something. Oh, Acts uh, 7, 59 through 60. Reference only. You can look it up later. But when he's, remember he sees the Lord. He see, he has a vision of him, and he he starts talking to the Lord in that vision. That's an apostasia. That's a vision. Okay. This sounds strange, but there are many many Christians who have experienced apostasias at the time of death. They see the Lord. 
It's a very common experience. So for us, it has that interest in it. But that is not everybody. Those are people who have the relationship like Stephen does, a mature believer relationship, something where the Lord actually comes to you in that vision. Okay. And what happens is you're absolutely clear. So you're not like uh, on drugs or anything like that. It, it, it's, why, it's why Jesus, remember when, remember when Jesus was on the cross and, and he refused to have the wine vinegar? It's because he didn't want his thinking to be messed up. Okay? Um, and this is what happens is sometimes when, when Christians, if they, if they take something that has a drug in it, that they lose that. Okay? Because clarity cannot come through drugs, period. Okay? So, um, but it is one of the, one of the things that's, that's that's kind of interesting. Now, the the revelation here is a revelation means a uh, means a teaching, and if you can see right here, it says um, a vision and revelation from who? The Lord. This is the one I was talking about with Galatians, and I found that verse. Uh, if you could, this is the three years of teaching. It's between, if you look and compare Galatians one seventeen, you want to look that up? You can write it down. With Acts nine twenty two and twenty three, the one we looked at. You will see where he, where he has those three missing years. In Galatians 1.17, he clearly tells you he's there for three years. And he's there being taught by the Lord in this exact way. The revelations and teachings of Bible doctrine are given him directly by the resurrected Christ. Okay? I suppose that's better than the angels of Moses, right? Um, okay. And he's going to relate something here. And he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Now, the man he's talking about is himself. Okay? He's the man. But he's talking about him in the third person, like he's somebody else. Okay? And he's doing that to kind of, um, because he's not really, he, um, in the talking here, he can't tell the difference between reality, apostasia, and death. They, they look the same to him. Okay? Paul does. They look the same to him. Why? It's because an apostasia takes place when your mind is absolutely clear. It's just everything's weird. You know, it's, just, it, it, it's, it's different. But it is clarity. So that's why it, it'll help you understand his argument where he says, 14 years ago I was caught up. And, and that word caught up is, means be, it, it's in the passive voice, which means that something took him and yanked him out. The powerful force is the word that's used here. And it's used in the passive. So he didn't do it. It happened to him. He was the one that happened to. And it says, talking to the third heaven. Now, a lot of people aren't familiar with the third heaven, but the third heaven, there's three heavens, okay, in the Bible. There's only one true heaven that we talk about. But the first one is the atmosphere that surrounds the earth. The second one is space, okay? That's where the angels hang out. Most of them do. And then the third one is the abode of God, is the home of God himself on the other side of the universe. Okay, those are three. So when he's talking about the third one, that's the one he's talking about. There's only three. It's a reference so that you know what he's talking about there. Um, and he says here, he says, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. So he's, that's why he's talking about like a, a third person. He says, but he says, God knows. God knows that that was. Now we know from his previous reference that he actually did die. He had an apostasia in that death. He was up in heaven for, this sounds strange, even though it appeared to be very little time on earth, in heaven there's no time. Time does not exist outside of us. We are in a little capsule watching down through time. But outside of this, eternity surrounds us. And if you die tonight, 
or I do, you will pop up into eternity with no time whatsoever. Time is a creation by God, and we're in that little capsule, and we just run along it. That's what we do until we don't run along anymore, right? So it says that God knows. Um, interesting enough, there's a piece here where if you look at Acts 14, 19, and 20, which we already did, and you look at 2 Corinthians eleven twenty five, which we already covered tonight, <clears throat> between these two, um, the dates of the one written in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, was 57 AD. That's when the book was written, 2 Corinthians was. The time of the Lista interest, uh, uh, issue of stoning, where we read before, and Acts 14 is 43 years AD, and that is the 14 years he's talking about. So you can actually see that. Um, so that, 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 that's how you know it was him. He says, I know that this man, who's Paul, whether uh, in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. He's talking about, he just doesn't know. He says, but God knows again. He repeats this over again. But the interesting thing is that he repeats it, but he uses a different word in the Greek, but not in the English. Okay, repeats the exact same sentence, but the word he uses, the word is chorus. And chorus means to be totally separated of the body from the soul. Okay, so it confirms that even though he is saying that, the Holy Spirit is answering that question for us. He was dead, he died there, but God brought him back. Okay, when he was there, he got taught doctrine that is not known to anybody today, okay? And he'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 4, he says, I was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. What it says here is that it was, it's that, remember that great force where he says, I was caught up. I wasn't caught up. I was like ripped off the earth. My, my soul and body were separated. My separated was instantly, my soul was in heaven with the Lord. And I was able to look around, hang out for a little bit. Okay? Kind of cool. Um, the word he uses is the word paradise. Um, paradise, not many people know much about paradise. Paradise actually is a Persian word. And uh, it, it, was, it was taken, when the, if you remember with the captivities, the Persians had the word paradise. It was taken by the Hebrews. And then it was taken by the Greeks, and now it's taken by us. Okay, it's called the transliteration. We take the word uh, and we move it along. But in its original context, it was a place. It was a pleasure park. Uh, from this is the original Persian viewpoint. Uh, it had lots of beautiful women, which is a nice place to be, right? Maybe half of you don't get that, but uh, the other half of us does. Great hunting and great trees. So it is from a from a normal man's point of view, this is like, ah, that's paradise, okay? Um, so that's where it comes, but if you're a Persian, maybe not us, okay? Our, our, our paradise does not look that way. But note that this paradise is not the paradise of when Jesus talks about it, when he says, even this day you'll be with me in paradise. That paradise is in Hades, which is down. This paradise is in heaven, which is up. There's actually two different ones, okay? It's a lot of stuff to talk about, but that's what they are. Um, so it's not the same one, and this is a different one. And what's, what's important here is that what he's trying to tell us here at the end, he says, um, 
I heard things that were inexpressible, things that I am not permitted to say. And this is very similar to, um, very similar to what happens with Daniel in chapter 12, verse 4. I don't think I have it up there. Oh, I do. I'll be darned. Um, you really were good. Um, but you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Uh, many will go here and there and increase in knowledge, and he goes on. What he's saying is that in one of the visions that Daniel had, it was the vision that we find in the book of Revelation given by John. Um, 700 years, yeah, 600 years, 700, almost 700 years later. And what, what the Lord told him, because the Lord's talking to him, he says, all that you see, seal it up. Do not reveal it to anybody. It's not for others to know. Otherwise, the book of Revelation would have been written on the end of Daniel. Okay? Because that's what, that's what he saw. And what's happening here is the same thing. Um, is that the things that Paul saw and Whatever time he was there, not human time, but time outside of time, he learned things. He saw things. He confirmed things. He learned Bible doctrine. He, able, he was able to see in heaven that the uh, angels of God, he was able to see the Lord himself. He was able to see all of that. Um, and that sounds like a good thing, but it has a, it has a bad side effect. Okay, what he's told here is the same thing. Things that are not permitted, permitted to tell. What he says is that that word means they're unlawful to tell. God says no. Okay, we have lots of examples of this in the scripture. We talked about it in the class before this. Believe it or not, people actually endured another class before this one. Um, but there are things that are called the mystery doctrines that were never revealed in the Old Testament. Okay, they're, they're talking about in Romans 16. There are things that are called hidden manna that are only available to mature believers, even in our time. Immature believers, it's not available to them. It's in Roman, Revelation chapter 1. There are things in the millennium that will be doctrines that we do not know today. Okay? They are hidden, just like this one here. Inexpressible things. And I'll tell you one of the problems. Let me tell you one of the problems with this. He talks about it in the next verse. Verse 5, he says, I will, boast, um, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Now, let me tell you one of the problems he has here. Let me give you an example. The concern is that when you see something like that and you learn something like that, you are no longer like other people. Okay? Let me give you an example. Paul has a vision. He sees heaven. He sees all of it. Wherever long he's there, he's, he tells very clearly that he saw revelations. He got doctrine from up there that he is not allowed to say. Let me give you an example. So you come up to Paul and you say, hey, Paul, I'm really scared to die. Most of us think that's pretty legitimate. Paul looks at him and says, you're a moron. Why would you be afraid to die? It's the best place in the whole world. In fact, I wish I was dead. It takes on a different flavor, doesn't it? Okay. Because of the knowledge is so clear, he is so absolute. And he has no mercy for those who do not see it clearly. This is a, a common fault. As you grow in maturity and learn the word of God, you get impatient with those who do not. I do it all the time. 
not nice, it's just true. Because sometimes you know the word of God and you see somebody get all shook up and you go, don't you understand that God's with you? He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Don't you get it? Because that I grasp. And many times people don't grasp it. And because they don't grasp it, they're afraid. And that fear messes up their life, messes up their witness. So that's a very similar thing that's happening here. Paul sees things, and God says, you can't tell anybody because you will mess them up. Okay? You're not allowed. So verse 5, he says, I will boast about that man, but I will not boast about myself except in my weaknesses. And what he's really saying here is that I can boast about him because he had an aphasia. He, he saw these things. That's why he's talking about like he's the third person. But he's not allowed to pull this person down and relate to him. So he's talking about him like that. He says, but I'll talk about myself, says Paul. I'll talk about my weaknesses. I'll talk about my frailties. Why is that important? It's because if Paul talks about all the great things he does, everybody, like, remember how the, how the Corinthians went to the Judaizer? They're going to go to Paul. Oh, Paul, I didn't know those things. Wow, you are so great. The focus now comes off of Jesus Christ, the only celebrity, to Paul. That's why Paul won't do it. That's why we shouldn't do it. Okay? Verse 6. We're almost there. We're coming to the home stretch. I told you. Joe leaves and what happens, you know? Um, even if I should choose to boast, and that's a third class condition, so maybe he will, maybe he won't, but he sees no advantages. He says, I would, be a, I would not be a fool. And that's actually supposed to be, the, the, the grammar puts that in parentheses, okay? Um, because I would be speaking the truth. What he's saying there is, says, you know something? I could list all these things. I could list that. I've been to heaven. I died. I went through all these things. I could list all these things. I could. But I don't know why I would. There's nothing to be benefited from this. That's what he's really coming to. He says, lest anyone should overestimate me. He says, even if, even if I, but if I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I say and what I do. He, this, is a, this is to me one of the greatest things um, in Christianity, I think, is that People should measure you by what you do and what you say. That's what Christianity is. Okay? It's not about your boasting. It's about what you do. That's what it comes down to. People, people can only see Christ through you. He's not here anymore. Okay? God has equipped you to reveal Jesus Christ through your life or what you say and what you do and the values that you have. He has done that. He doesn't want anybody to focus on him. He only wants them to focus on Christ. He says, or because of the surpassing great revelation. Now, revelations here is plural, and that means Bible doctrine. The Bible doctrines that he knows, and the word here isn't surpassing. It's like hugely abundant. So he's talking about these revelations that he has and the revelations that he does have, that what they will do is that they will make him conceited. So he says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. 
<clears throat> now, this is one of the most top, talked about things. Let me, let me read, a, a better, I think, what a better translation is. It says, therefore, uh, that I not be arrogant because of the abundant revelation, Bible doctrine that he knows from his heaven experience and from his teaching of the Lord. None of us had personal teaching by Jesus. Uh, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. And the word messenger in here is the word agalos. It's not messenger. It's, it's angel. An agalos is an angel. Now, were the idiots translated in Romans chapter, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 as messenger, uh, as angel, it's actually messenger. It's the exact opposite. They get these mixed up. So he's telling us, lots of people, for those of you who are familiar with this, this tells us that many times people have wondered what this meant. But he's telling you, he says, an angel, uh, an angel from, Satan, from the source of Satan, from Satan, that's a demon, um, that he might punch me continually that I may not be arrogant. So what's happening here is God, and this will be the next verse, we'll get a little more fun here. He says, um, oops, he says, three times I pleaded, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Okay, so what happens is that God is allowing a demon to take Paul and punch him continuously. Now you've already seen the list of all the things that he's gone through, right? Paul's not a sissy, but whatever it is about this demon, I don't know how a demon's hit, but I bet it hurts, is that this really hurt enough for him to plead. The word is plead, to beg the Lord. Lord, Lord, please take this pain from me. It hurts. It really, really hurts. Verse 9. Let me, let me tell you something about this first thing you get it. This, this will kind of light you up a little bit. When Paul is begging the Lord to relieve his pain, he's actually acting like a whiny baby. Okay? We do this all the time. And he's going to, he's going to tell you here why in verse 9. Okay? He's going to take, I didn't take. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. <clears throat> now, the word he has here in the, um, where he says, but he said to me, sounds like Jesus was talking to him. But Jesus was not talking to him. And we know that because he writes the, the word in what's called the perfect tense. And the perfect tense means that you said it to me before. I hear it now, and I'll hear it forever. So what it tells you is that Jesus is not speaking to him. The Lord told him that before. It's doctrine. It's something that the Lord gave him before. This is a great principle. It's because when you have a struggle in life, and you ask God, please take it from me. You're more or less saying, God, you obviously forgot about me. I dropped off your hand someplace, and you don't know. So I'm reminding you, I'm down here, Lord, suffering. Okay? But we can see from the context, the Lord himself is the one who allowed the demon to beat the snot out of Paul. Why? So Paul would not be arrogant. Because knowing this much doctrine made him really arrogant. And God had to tone him down. Now, when he writes this, it's not there anymore. The Lord did take it away, okay? But he didn't take it away the way he thought, okay? He reminds him 
my grace. The word here is sufficient. That's not what the word says. Because of where it's located and the way it's in here in the grammar, it says, my grace produces contentment in you. Contentment. What is, the, the question that should be driving us all crazy is that what grace does God have for us that produces contentment? What is that? Do you know it? Do you know God's grace that brings contentment to you to produces contentment? Most people don't. And that's why he's bringing here. The contentment, the my grace part, is a system that God has available to us in our weakness. That's when it shows up. Okay? Why in our weakness? It's because we have nothing we can do. Every, all of our power just falls off. Okay? Paul could not fix this. Okay? What God's telling him to do, what the Lord's telling him to do, by this doctrine, <clears throat> what happens is that he is remembering. Why do you go to church and learn stuff? Why do you study the Bible? Why do you go to classes? Why do you read it? You read it to store up in your soul the mentality of a whole big bag of doctrines that God has for you so that you know what to do. And that's what this is. That's why he says, it's something he had said to me. Okay, before, in the past. He's remembering it. So when things happen to you, God, God the Holy Spirit, the way that it works is that you come here and you learn doctrine a piece at a time and you store it up and you connect it together and it all makes sense. And what happens is you start acting, hopefully, you choose God and you start acting like he, he, his, his, uh, his protocol, that's what it's called, his process of how you deal with things. <clears throat> and then when you run into something that hurts, something that surprises you, something that scares you, 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 that's a normal reaction. You go, oh! and you go, wait a minute. I know how to do this. I know what this is. The Lord is the one who's always with me. He never leaves me or forsake me. Do not fear or be dismayed. The Lord always goes before me. He knows I'm going here. He knows what this is about. I can trust him. That's where doctrine fits. That's where he is. What God's saying is that I'm not answering your prayer. You need to learn this by yourself. Now, if you have kids, it's really nice to do things for kids. But if you don't teach them those things, they never grow up. That's what's happening here. This is what happens to us. So why do we have these things, these, all these things in our lives? Because God doesn't want us to stay stupid. He doesn't want us to stay babies. He doesn't want us to be immature. He wants us to grow in him so that we can be available to him, so that we're something to him. He is being reoriented. He is remembering a principle. <sighs> we surely were done by this thing right now, right? Last verse. I bet you thought you'd never get here, huh? I know. I'm, I'm with you. Oh, my goodness. I'm trying to break a record here of Paul's, I mean, of, of, of Joe's. Just three more minutes, I'll break his record. I'm just kidding. Uh, verse 10. That is why, for Christ's sakes, Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. You're strong because God has a grace system there for you. When you surrender to him, his power comes to you. Okay? Do not be anxious about anything. 
but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. It goes beyond understanding. It's grace. That is the only way you live the Christian life. You don't bring anything to it. You brought nothing to salvation. You bring nothing to the Christian life. And when you do, you mess up your Christian life. God asks you to obey. He asks you to depend on his power of his word and the power of his Holy Spirit. That's what he asked you for. And that's this piece right here. He says, therefore, I take pleasure. This is, the, this is how the, you take the words out. I take pleasure in my weakness. I take pleasure in my insults. I take pleasure in my pressures from needing things. I take, pressure, I take pleasure in my persecutions. I take pleasure in my anguishes. And on behalf of Christ, when I am weak, at that time and that time only, Am I strong? This is the piece where Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden's light, because God does that work. Like Paul, we must all learn to study and learn Bible doctrine. Learn those principles so that when adversities come, you can take pleasure in the weaknesses, the insults, the needs of life, the persecutions, in the anguishes and difficulties. Learn, remember, so the Holy Spirit has something to work with with you, and apply in faith. That's the Christian life. Thanks. Let's pray. Dearest, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Lord, you have a system of grace that is just waiting for every Christian to pick it up, every Christian to learn it. But it has to be learned. It's not done by thinking. It's not done by power and strength or by being brave. It's done by surrender. Done by letting you do the things in our lives that you want to have done. Powerfully shown in our weaknesses and our persecutions and those things. I pray, Lord, to help us to learn your word so the Holy Spirit has something to work with when we want to walk with you. When we want to do the things that you put before us. I ask this in Jesus' name, who lived this perfect grace life. Amen. That's the end of today's message. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and want to support our mission of reaching others, help grow our ministry by visiting ficfreno.com slash give. To get the latest updates from our channel, hit the subscribe button. Visit our Facebook page by clicking the link below to let us know how God is moving in your life.